Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like barnacles, bed sores, and salt. Mm. I'd like to do. I'd like to do salt. I think. Mm. I salt, think the salt is of, an interesting one. Salt would be a very interesting one. We should. We should cue that up. Or we could do the history of prayers, sairs, wares, mares, flares, <laughs> and dares. Ooh, I think the history of dares is particularly cool. Could you imagine that what you could good. do with the history of dares? Yes. So um, there's loads of Second World War stuff you can do. Not in just who dares wins, but in daring the enemy to do something. I say all this because I've just uh, watched uh, the Operation Mincemeat, a very good film about um, this uh, amazing deception which happened just before the invasion of Sicily in the Second World War. Um, and there's quite a lot of... Um, Sort of almost daring the daring the enemy to act in one way or another. Um, sort of multiple um, cycles and spirals of spying. Thought it was brilliant. Oh, or I've been reading a brilliant, brilliant uh, modern Japanese book, uh, shortlisted for the 2022 International Booker Prize. A book called Heaven by Miko Kawakami, which has it's situated in Japan, in Tokyo, I think. And it's two children or kids who are at middle school. So they're around 13, 14, and they are the outcasts of the class. And the kids, the really awful kids who bully them, they treat them mercilessly in this school. And the kids who are picking on them dare each other to do the most awful things. And there is the most tragic denouement at the end so i think we should we should do dares and maybe a historical kind of approach to dares i can imagine kid yeah history of kids sort of daring each other to do you know silly pranks like knock knock ginger and all of those sort of weird and wonderful games but for the yep. moment we should be following the links in our minds as we come across them explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways who knew for example sam who knew that the history of thirst is in fact all about the history of california and access to water it's a global history of drinking water it's also all about pablo Valencia's extraordinary trek through the Arizona desert and the scientific study of dehydration. It's about the history of teetotalism and the discovery of five crates of liquor under Ernest Shackleton's Antarctic hut and historical cocktails. Who knew? I think we should actually do the history of cold because it is freezing this morning, quite literally freezing. Um, mm. It's February and it's blooming cold. Or who knew that the history of tents is in fact all about ancient Rome and the Dacian campaign recorded in Trajan's column in Rome. It's about the Industrial Revolution, nomadism and the American Civil War. It's also all about Tudor glamping, Henry VIII and the field of the cloth of gold. It's about Roald Amerson and the journeying to the South Pole and the current location of his expedition, the Fram. Who knew?
Mm, fascinating stuff. Uh, let me say of my fellow presenter that if history were a tree, it would be no twiglety, spindly sapling of the past, but a stout English hedgerow oak with a deep and thick canopy, and hiding in said sturdy oak would be none other than James Daybell collecting the mighty acorns of the past, as normal humans simply walk by unaware of his presence in the canopy above. A tree dweller of the stature of no less than Charles II. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, Hello, Sam. I like being the. I like the idea of me being a solid oak, uh, very unfrail. (laughs) Uh, You may well be wondering who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a frailty-related historian, he'd only be the exact opposite of some crumbling, crusty old history don doddering around the Codrington Library and the baize-tabled seminar rooms of All Souls College, Oxford. This man's an action-packed adventurer in the archives, a veritable Indiana Jones of historical daring-do. There's nothing feeble about his historical analysis, no siree, Bob, nothing frail about his powers of historical deduction. He's the real deal, a sprightly mind and body, all in the service to uncovering the truth of the past. Yes, you've guessed it, is the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, and today we are embracing our strength as historians to look at those less blessed as us than us and talking about frailty, um, which is an interesting topic, is it not, James? It is. And it's one that we came up just because I was randomly thinking of topics that we could do. There was no real entree into this. But once you start looking into it, it is deeply fascinating. And I think what's really interesting about it is that it is at the cutting edge of where medical humanities and medical history meet. And there's some really interesting early modern medieval research that's going on, in particular uh, by doctoral students, so students doing PhDs, many of them funded by the Wellcome Trust. And there are a couple of PhD students that I'm whose work I'm going to be talking about Jude Seal who is at Royal Holloway University of London who is researching the cultural perceptions of blindness deafness and mutism in English miracle literature between 1070 and 1450 and Amy Bolisian McRae who's a Wellcome Trust funded PhD student at the University of Reading who is working on the aged patient in early modern England. But before we get into that, I just wanted to give some kind of sense of what we mean by frailty. And I was reading uh, a blog by John Young, uh, who was at one point Professor John Young, who was National Clinical Director for the Frail Elderly and Integration of NHS England. This was written uh, about a decade ago. He's no longer with the NHS, but he defines frailty as frailty is relating to the ageing process. That is simply getting older. It describes how our bodies gradually lose their inbuilt reserves, leaving us vulnerable to dramatic sudden changes in health, triggered by sea seemingly small events such as a minor infection or a change in medication or environment. In medicine, frailty defines the group of older people who are at highest risk of adverse outcomes such as falls, disability, admission to hospital or the need for long-term care. And then he goes on about, about some of the sort of ways in which people nowadays can treat 
uh, frailty. Rest is rust. So, in other words, do not become completely inactive. Even just walking upstairs can actually be really good for you. Inner fuel is another thing. Uh, so many people who are very elderly and become frail lose their appetite but it's important to keep going be brave and stop stop the drugs in other words bo old bodies are very sensitive to particular kinds of medicines so you know be careful about that take vitamin d uh, do you take vitamin d sam it's very good yes. for you it's very good mm. for you i i have a jar of it um and i don't take it but i should do um <laughs> so i think one of the challenges for us this, of course, is current day uh, NHS um, dogma. But how do we start thinking about frailty in the past? How do we recover you know, a sort of conceptions of frailty, how people understand their own body, how society deals with it or how societies across the past have dealt with it? And I'm going to be talking about a couple of sort of little entrees into it. The first is about how... Uh, women in particular uh, living in the 16th and 17th century England conceptualise their own frail frailty and then I'm going to be talking about uh, medieval manuscripts and depictions of frailty. Uh, so some really interesting sort of historical challenges to be getting on with there. Wonderful stuff. Where, where are you taking us Sam on this quest for frailty? Um, well, frailty in terms of um, the human condition, I thought, moral frailty mm. I, was a really interesting way of doing it. Actually, one of the the first things I thought about was um, how uh, there's a, a very a deep and uh, an intricate history of religion in relation to people's failings. Um, and there are various ways you can look at this. I decided to have a quick look at the, um, at the deadly sins and how that actually um, has its own fascinating history. So I'm talking here pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony and sloth. Now, each of those, um, interestingly, have their own history. Um, they have their own kind of pre-Christian Greek and Roman precedents. Aristotle's a very interesting uh, person in relation to this because he writes about what he describes as um, excellences or virtues. Um, so he does it in a much more positive framework rather than the Christian way of doing it and looking at the negative side of things. And he looks at these uh, excellences or virtues um, as being a positive quality and that there's a, a kind of a he describes it as the golden mean, like a perfect balance between two extremes, but the extremes are being vice, right? So courage uh, is a really interesting example. So um, this is about facing fear, it's about facing danger, but too much of it is recklessness and, um, and not enough of it, a deficiency, uh, is cowardice. Uh, and there are various other ways you can do this as well. Um, a temperance, uh, self-control, generosity, greatness of soul, or um, he describes as magnanimity, essentially. Um, anger, how it can be measured. Um, he writes about friendship, he writes about wit, he writes about charm. So I thought it was fascinating that these uh, things that we see as um, human frailties, a Christian history, all, all have a pre-Christian history. And they also have a fascinating history um, from the 18th century into the 19th century, when there's a lot of artistic response to the concepts of the deadly sins. In fact, it's something that's been going on um, since since the Middle Ages. But um, I think particularly interesting is how and why they start uh, becoming important in the 18th century. And um, the way they're depicted through uh, parables, 
is interesting, the way they're depicted through kids' nursery rhymes. You talked about that before. Um, and uh, in art, and there are some really magnificent and um, historically complex images which um, have their own um, important position in the history of the deadly sins. There's uh, a, a very uh, significant one by William Hogarth. So we're talking um, mid-18th century here. It's called Marriage à la Mode, or the Tête à Tête, and it's a, a very striking painting of a well-to-do house, well-furnished, um, with uh, several characters in it, but it's in a complete state of chaos. There are knocked chairs everywhere, there are unpaid bills everywhere. Um, you've got a one chap who's a, who's a viscount, viscount, I should probably say. He's 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 depicted being he's kind of slumped, absolutely exhausted. You should think maybe he's had a night at a brothel. There's a large black spot on his neck, which is a, a kind of traditional sign that he's caught syphilis. Um, there's a pet dog uh, which is sniffing something in his pocket, which is believed to be uh, a lady's cap, which is, again, further evidence that he's been up all night, that he is an adulterer. Uh, opposite him on this little table is a, is a Viscountess, and she's having tea on her own for one. He's not taking part in a bit, and it's that's symbolic of her own independence. She herself is a bit like um, a bit like the Viscount. She's slouched, she's exhausted, she's unkempt, um, which is all indicative of her own unfaithfulness. Um, and so we've got some comment here, commentary here on, on the lustful habits of the aristocracy. And there are various other uh, hints as well, other vices. There's a broken sword in the corner, uh, suggesting fighting, so wrath. Uh, and they're generally living in domestic squalor, which is itself uh, suggestive of sloth. So it's a, a fantastic image. And it's one of a whole series that looks at this question of infidelity, a fascinating one from the 19th century um, by an artist called Augustus Leopold Egg, um, who uh, it was painting in um, a, a 1840s, 1850s. Uh, this is from 1858. It's particularly about female infidelity. It's very striking indeed. You've got a husband sitting at a table looking down at his wife who has literally fallen. So the fallen woman, she's collapsed on the floor in front of him. And while it was uh, common for men in this period to have mistresses uh, and kind of get away with it and have no judgment on them, um, adultery in women was, uh, was, was seen as a crime. Um, and it's the way it's depicted here is fascinating. So you've got this chap sitting at a table. He's stamping on a, a little miniature portrait of, I presume, who is her her lover. He's also holding a letter. So I think he's intercepted some correspondence between the two. Uh, their kids are playing in the background, and they um, they're trying to build a house of cards, which has collapsed. Which is such a wonderful wonderful depiction of everything else that is going on here. Um, there's even a, a little a painting within a painting. So up on the wall is a painting of um, the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. So going back to original sin as depicted in the Bible. Um, and there's also another uh, um, reference to biblical sin here. You've got an apple cut in half. One half is shown rotting on the floor next to the wife who's collapsed. And the other is, um, is a kind of a, a perfect half of an apple with a knife stabbed into its heart. Um, representing the betrayed husband. So here is a very masculine interpretation, um, a very Victorian interpretation of infidelity as a sin and a moral frailty as experienced and as, as um, portrayed in 1858. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're moving from moral frailty back to physical frailty. I'm going to talk a little bit about how one finds this in historical records. And my starting place for this is that wonderful project that we've spoken about in the past, Everyday Life and Fatal Hazard in 16th Century England, uh, which is run by Professor Steve Gunn at the University of Oxford. Now, one of the things that you find with uh, coroner's records is they often don't mention the age of people who accidents befell. Uh, so it's quite difficult to sort of get at, at the elderly and infirm um, in accidents. But you can get at the you can get at people who have a bit what we might describe nowadays as mobility devices. And there are a couple of examples that we've got. And these feature in their cases of the month. This is the project's cases of the month where uh, individuals who have walking aids uh, come a cropper. Uh, and there are a couple of uh, examples here. And crutches were, see, were very much an aid for, for walking, of course. And there are a couple of individuals. Robert Tappin of Swineshead in Huntingtonshire, who was a tailor and was described as lame, impotent and decrepit. On the 20th of May, 1583, he was trying to cross a plank bridge over the River Neen in the fields of Higham Ferrers in Northamptonshire. But the wooden crutch, which he used to hold up his body, uh, which is valued at around a halfpenny, slipped and he fell into the river and, of course, was taken away and drowned. Um, a few years earlier uh, and a few miles away, uh, a similar accident led to the death of Nicholas Ellicar, of Folthorpe in Yorkshire, who was a gentleman, uh, who before dawn on the 6th of November 1516 was walking on his crutches of wood from Folthorpe to a place called Ravensite Bank and he fell into the River Swale and he drowned. So there we have the historical record of individuals who uh, die or have accidents and die um, and we can see the details of the mobility devices that they were using. So we can reconstruct, I suppose, a history of disability through those kinds of details of everyday life. Now, what that led me to think about is, OK, so what is the history of mobility aids? How far does this go back? How far are there devices that you enabled people who were, were frail to get around and one can think about nowadays of all the sort of clever technological advances that you've got you think about uh, Stephen Hawking going around in his motorized wheelchair and you think about the way in which people who almost have locked in syndrome are able to you know, use their brain patterns to um, enable them to navigate around um, even the sort of the ubiquity of portable 
um, wheelchairs uh, at the moment, um, you know, that could be folded up, put in the boot of a car and actually enable people to, to go around. You think about what is happening in museums and heritage sites at the moment. There is a big... Uh, concern around access in other words that heritage and history should be for everyone and so you need access for people with wheelchairs less able-bodied people to be able to come and visit those sites so this got me thinking about where does that all start where does that begin and I think if you look back in time if you go back to the 5th century BC uh, for example there is a there is an image of the ancient philosopher and teacher Confucius, who is depicted in a wheelchair. Uh, if we go to something like Hieronymus Bosch's, um, a Netherlandish Netherlandish artist, um, if you have a look at his in Vienna, um, in the Kunsthistorische Museum of Art in Vienna in Austria, there is depicted there on part of an altarpiece a Christ child with a walking frame. Um, walking sticks have been around for probably thousands of years, things that are improvised. When we wrote a chapter on the history of the lean in our large book, part of that was about people who had been injured during the wars and hospitals that were set up and the aids to help them walk. And the walking stick was a really interesting part of that. Um, it's not until the 18th century the kinds of wheelchairs that we're used to seeing today were invented. Um, in the 19th century, wheelchairs were made out of wood and wicker. They were used in the United States of America um, around for um, Civil War veterans. And in fact, it's often technology follows great wars where a lot of people have been injured and medical people inventors are coming up with things in order to help them in order to help them get around and help them walk and we can follow this all the way through to the invention of the zimmer frame that we see today and people you know walking around the place uh, with the use of that now one very interesting uh, blog that i came across was by uh, the historian that I was talking about earlier on, Jude Seal, uh, who's a medieval uh, historian uh, at Royal Holloway University of London and doing a PhD around medieval uh, disability. Jude Seal is such a wonderful name for a medievalist. Uh, Jude Seal, fantastic. Um, but what he's interested in particular is the way in which we can capture the different kinds of mobility aids that would have been used during the medieval period. And the blog talks about medieval manuscripts. And medieval manuscripts often not only have beautiful illuminations, beautiful calligraphy, uh, highly decorative, but also there are pictures all over them. Now, the problem in interpreting these is that they are often meant not necessarily to be a reflection of everyday life, but they are often meant to amuse or to entertain. However, throughout these wonderful images that he has in this blog, in the margins are depicted all sorts of examples of people who have various disabilities and there are various devices that are used as mobility aids to get them around. And of course, if we think about the medieval period, this is the 
height of the the Catholic Church, the height of the medieval pilgrimage, where people went from shrine to shrine. So there was a lot of walking. And we've talked about pilgrimage in the past when we've talked about the history of walking. And so there's lots of evidence of people getting around with various mobility aids. And there's a wonderful sort of rich array of evidence about medieval daily life, about individuals with disabilities uh, that we can see here. Take, for example, the Psalter use of Sarum, the Rutland Psalter. And this is an English psalm book or Psalter dating from around 1250. And what we have in one of the pages here is a an individual with a, what looks like a child on his or her back holding out a begging bowl and a crutch or a staff which is a very common aid i mean people would have would have carried staffs to walk around rather like sort of gandalf or people in the lord of the rings or walkers today would have a staff or stick to sort of help them around but the staff that is depicted here particularly with the begging bowl uh, is depicted much more as a as a mobility aid there's another wonderful image in uh, Sloan Manuscript 56, which is Liber Mediciniarum. Uh, and here we have depicted a what looks like a, a soldier uh, who has his trousers sort of half torn down, a bloodied knee, and under each armpit is a pair of crutches. Uh, so crutches, these, these sort of under the arm, under the shoulder supports, uh, very similar to the kinds of crutches that people would have worn today. So again, we have a depiction of that. There's a similar depiction of crutches, under the shoulder crutches, in a German manuscript, uh, the Tübinger Hausbuch, uh, which is a book that uh, is a sort of concoction of medieval uh, medicine and astrology which dates from around the 15th century and what's remarkable about these is that there are little sort of handles uh, on these crutches so that you could walk yourself along uh, and the individual here seems to have a bandaged uh, bandaged foot uh, and and lower leg uh, another example is royal manuscript 13b8 the Topographia uh, Hibernii, uh, in which is depicted on the at the bottom of the page, on the left-hand side, is a pair of hand trestles, which are another form of mobility aid from the medieval period, uh, very similar to the kinds of hand trestle or elbow crutches uh, that one might use nowadays, so to enable you to get around. Uh, on the floor so the idea is that he's depicted here what looks like a monk is depicted with a pair of hand trestles and on his knees and pulling himself forward on the floor um, some other examples in the Luttrell Psalter uh, manuscript 42130 uh, shows people with a range of mobility aids down at the bottom there is depicted there uh, a castle and three individuals uh, two of whom are one of whom is using crutches one of whom is using a staff and another of whom is using a pair of of hand crutches and so i think what we see is people sort of moving from from one place to go and visit a, a shrine um so this is about the detailing the sort of miraculous events at shrines here and so we and so we go on and there are other sort of examples in the uh, manuscript of the seven planets 
which is dated circa 1465, uh, which is a German manuscript here. We see a figure uh, with a prosthetic or wooden support uh, below the knee. So all sorts of examples here of mobility aids in medieval manuscripts you know this isn't simply for entertainment but this is actually showing how people would have improvised devices to help them around when they were uh, less well abled or frail or disabled so there we are sam mm. medieval frailty for you uh, the material culture of medieval frailty i imagine no less wonderful stuff james i was thinking about um frailty in terms of the physical frailty in terms of people who went on to become natural leaders so essentially famous strong men i was thinking about this because i've been asked to write something uh, to go alongside um nelson's uh nelson's tomb in st paul's cathedral and he was notoriously uh, famous as being someone who is physically frail but had had the courage of of 20 men um and uh, he himself is an interesting person, but Maximilien Robespierre is another one. Um, so he is the chap, he's a French lawyer, he's a statesman, he becomes uh, a hugely influential and, and, and controversial figure in the French Revolution. Um, he is in charge during the worst atrocities of the Reign of Terror. He himself um, goes on to become um, a victim of the guillotine which is something that he'd done so much to bring in, a mechanical way of, of executing people. Um, uh, if you're actually interested in that, in the mechanics of that, um, you should go and back and listen to our episode on the history of robots, uh, where I talk about uh, the French revolutionaries um, comparing their king to an automaton. Anyway, um, someone found something really interesting. So Robespierre that has a really interesting... There's a kind of interesting balance between him um, being... Uh, a really powerful politician who strongly and directly affects the course of the French Revolution, but also his physical frailty. And what he's done is he's gone through um, the biography, the diary of Robespierre, um, identifying key moments in Robespierre's history and mo periods of stress before periods of absence. So we know from Robespierre's diary when he was unwell and we can recreate um, from Robespierre's biography, the history of the French Revolution, when he went through periods of uh, intense stress. So 1790, for example, in May, he, he's opposing the king's right to declare war. He um, has to support clerical marriage. These are really important themes at uh, this stage in the French Revolution. He then has a political conflict um, that those following months, April to June, uh, with a chap called Beaumet. Um, but then this leads to a period of absence and illness um, from the middle of June onwards. And this pattern continues for the next five years. It's absolutely fascinating. So 1791, um, it is also interesting, the majority of this is in the spring. 1791, he's defending the right to petition the freedom of the press. Um, he's supporting uh, the, the freedom of men of colour, as he describes them, in the colonies. He opposes the death penalty. 
um, which is quite interesting considering what happens subsequently. Uh, he proposes something called the self-denying ordinance. This is to do with deputies in outgoing national uh, national assemblies. It's followed by, again, a period of absence and illness in June and so on. You can do this all the way through. 1793 is interesting. Um, there's a major conflict with the Gironde, um, and subsequently he is unwell, he is he is ill. August and September, you've got um, notable military defeats, um, rising federalist insurrections. Uh, the terror is launched. Um, there's a sans-culotte insurrection in September, and then from September till October, he is unwell again. So um, it's very interesting the way that these two have been put together. I thought it was fascinating, and I was wondering whether um, this uh, these periods of absence and illness are directly linked to the stressful political events of his life, um, and whether this is to a certain extent psychosomatic, whether it's um, whether it is a direct result of the of the psychological pressure that this man was under, this key leader in the French Revolution. Ooh, that's excellent, Sam. Very, very interesting, um, and it sort of links with what I was sort of going to talk about very, very briefly, um, which is about this idea of how people conceptualize and understand their own frailty so as you as you age how do you how do you feel about that how does that change the way in which you start living and one of the ways that we can start thinking about that is the way in which people might narrate that through diaries so their own kinds of forms of self-writing and I came across this sort of idea through the work of another PhD student who I talked about earlier on, Amy Belisian McRae, who is that PhD student at the University of Reading, funded by the Wellcome Trust and her project, The Aged Patient in Early Modern England. And one of the characters that I came across here is somebody that I've, I've, I've studied for a long time, a female diarist called Sarah Cowper. Uh, who lived between 1644 and 1720. She is the daughter of a fairly wealthy merchant. She then marries a lawyer called William Cowper, who then inherits, you know, a fairly sort of substantial amount of money, properties in London and Kent, uh, a baronetcy, um, but not enough money to really keep them uh, in the sort of life that they wish to uh, become accustomed to. And they have a disastrous marriage. She talks about that. She's known uh, in the sort of women's writing, early modern women's writing world, as somebody who keeps a commonplace book. Um, and she keeps, um, you know, a, a sort of commonplace book in a sort of true uh, fashion under alphabetical headings. Um, but she also she also uh, keeps this diary uh, where she it covers the the sort of latter part of her life until she goes you know until she can't see enough to write anymore. But between about July seventeen hundred through to seventeen sixteen, and this is the period when she is becoming sort of she's aging, she's becoming sort of frailer, and she talks about it in quite great detail. Um, in On her birthday in 1716, she writes, um, I am now 72 years of age, very crazy and infirm, lame with rheumatic pains in my thighs. I now despair of ever getting rid of it. Also, my hands shake with palsy. I am dull of hearing, dim of sight, 
and what is worse, a cough disturbs me night and day, so as life itself no relish does afford. And so this, the whole PhD is sort of pivoting around this. How do you start thinking about people's attitudes towards infirmity in old age? How do people understand that? What are the emotions? How does religion play into that as you become ill, frail, weaker? How do you how do people start feeling about that? How do how does that relate to health and well-being? How does the medical profession intervene or not not really a profession at that point, but how are you medically treated? You know, to what extent do accidents happen? You know, how does society deal with declining health? You know, something that is that is inevitable that is going to happen to to us all, this sort of natural process of decline. Um, how do you deal with things like, you know, brittle bones or, as she says in this blog post, watery eyes? Um, so we haven't got time to sort of go into this, but I think definitely check out um, Amy Bullizian's work. Uh, she has already published some stuff. There is, a, She has her own website. There are a number of really interesting blogs here, including... Um, why older female diary writers in early modern England were more likely to mention their bowel movements than younger <laughs> women. Uh, there's also a lovely, um, a lovely piece on uh, imagining gender and lots of depictions of old man winter. So when you think about the seasons, a lot of the visual depictions of of, of winter are of an old man carrying a, a staff. So it's about frailty. That's another sort of great piece to sort of dig into. So there we are, Sam. I think we've been we've I've tried to sort of big up uh, a couple of uh, PhD students, and I think you know doing a PhD is a really exciting opportunity and it's also where we see some of the most vibrant and innovative work being done today yeah absolutely it's it's fascinating isn't it and it does show just how many ways we can look at frailty as well yes um, i came across a really interesting one which i think might be relevant to us as well because of of having lived through covid and being aware of the uh, enhanced um, danger of COVID to those who were already frail. And someone's done a fascinating study on the impact of the Black Death on stature and frailty, or the link between stature and frailty and mortality from the Black Death. This is particularly in London between 1348 and 1350. And um, there's, um, they, they identified um, a, uh, a, a graveyard. Um, they could pinpoint exactly um the the people buried there had died in very specific years of the plague um they managed to identify 127 adults and they went on to explore um their size they identified um a, a certain percentage of them this is through measuring their leg bones about who were short in stature it raised all sorts of interesting questions about why they were short in stature and it was believed to perhaps link to the great famine this is the kind of the generation before so 1315 to 1322 as a major problem because agricultural demand begins to outstrip uh, the capacity to actually provide food and um and uh, it, it was really interesting and they ended up concluding um, that uh, that yes, uh, uh, people who were small of stature, people who were physically frail, were particularly vulnerable to the Black Death, but were less convinced that uh, of the reasons for that. 
and um, the links between uh, that and the, the the famine from the previous generation. So I thought that was fascinating and uh, with relevant links to today. So there you are. I'm just touching on various ways we could think about the history of frailty. I really enjoyed that, James. I think we could do much more on that. I think we could. I think we could. Good stuff. Um, Thank you all for listening, guys. Um, Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in the history of the sea in maritime and naval history, please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. The podcast is on at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so come and make friends with us there. Check out our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, for our back catalogue and signed copies of our books. Um, You can also support the way in which we are trying to change the way in which people think about the past by heading over to patreon.com and to our page there, Histories of the Unexpected. Anything that you can do to help support the podcast would be very gratefully received indeed. But meanwhile, stay well out there, stay warm. (laughs) Cheerio, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.